I V M. The Lord was resorted to by all castes and chosen as their lord to protect them. In his territories, all his subjects adore him, for through his might the goals of dharma, artha, and kama are attained, and he has obtained great fame and reputation because he twice defeated Satakarni, the lord of the south, but did not destroy him due to their family relationship. Near the sacred hill of Girnar in Gujarat, once home to an ancient city called Giri Nagara, is an immense boulder covered with inscriptions. The oldest of these inscriptions was issued by Ashoka Maurya in Prakrit in the third century BCE. But the second inscription, which you just heard, is in Sanskrit. It was issued on the orders of a man called Rudra Daman, which means Garland of Rudra. an early vedic form of the hindu god shiva this man rudradaman tells us that a beautiful artificial lake first built by a mauryan governor near the sacred mountain was destroyed by a devastating thunderstorm around the year 150 ce soon after he had teams of architects and workers rebuild the dam creating a structure which he describes as equaling the spur of a mountain and restored the lake Unlike Ashoka's inscription though Rudradaman's is prolific and polished adhering to high literary standards he doesn't emerge from this inscription seeming like a living breathing human being with human follies and struggles he seems instead to be some kind of ideal not what a king is but what a king should be here's the strange thing about Rudradaman he is a shaka To be precise, Rudradaman is a Mahakshatrapa, one of the descendants of those Indo-Scythian horse lords who came to Gujarat and battled the Satavahanas. And though we ended episode three, the glory of a Deccan queen, with the Satavahanas beating back the Shakas, Rudradaman claims not only to have defeated the Satavahanas twice, but also to be closely related to them. The Shaka-Satavahana wars were not only deadly family conflicts but were also tied to the languages in which they wrote Sanskrit and Prakrit. Through this conflict was born one of the most remarkable cultures of the ancient world, the Sanskrit cosmopolis. Let me tell you its story. I'm Anirudh Kanesetti and welcome to Echoes. What is a language? Why do we speak the tongues that we do? To us the answer might be fairly obvious. We were educated in English so we speak English. Our families teach us another language, our friends teach us another. What we speak in a way is intertwined with who we are, the values we believe in, the way we see the world. In ancient India, things were quite similar to that. For the wealthy and more powerful people, The question of what language they spoke, how it was spoken, was key to their identities and to their behavior. When a king issued inscriptions in a particular language, it didn't always mean that it was a language that most of their subjects spoke. Rather, the language they chose was intended to convey certain qualities and behavioral norms and thus reinforce through sound the power of the king. At this time, Languages were more than just a means of communication. 
They were emblems of power, of culture. We think of ancient India as being almost a monolith, where the commoners spoke Prakrit, a language whose very name means natural, and the nobles spoke Sanskrit, a language whose name means perfected. But as with most things in India, the reality of languages, both spoken and written, is much, much more complex. At this time, the second century CE, Sanskrit and Prakrit were just two among dozens if not hundreds of other Indian languages, all with their own history, worldview and politics. The story of their interaction and evolution is an untold, almost completely forgotten aspect of our shared past. One of the most interesting things about the Satavahana dynasty is the way that they engage with the idea of language, particularly the way they use language as par. You may think, huh, well, you know, they're ancient Indian, so they must have written in Sanskrit. But no, except for one single inscription, which I'll come back to later, the Satavahanas always wrote in Prakrit. They practically invented the idea of using a language of par, which is basically a language promoted by a royal court to express a narrative of their right to rule and used to compete with the Shakas, who use Sanskrit as their language of par. The thing is, such languages also had to sound powerful. In Indian literary traditions, par or ojas is considered to be the essence of prose. But how do you make something sound powerful? It's not like ancient Indians had amplifier systems and mics. So they did the second best thing. They chose words that, well, reverberated. Thanks to the distinct grammar of many Indian languages, you can join a bunch of different adjectives together with a noun to make compound words of stunning lengths. The Satavahana started this tradition in Prakrit, and there's nothing else quite like it in any other group of world languages. Here's an example from one of our favorite ancient queens, Gautami Balashri, the mother of Gautami Putra Satakarni. If any linguists are listening, I apologize in advance for the pronunciation. Gautami describes her son as He whose pure face resembles the lotus blown open by the rays of the sun. She puts that as Divasakara Kara Vibhodita Kamala Vimala Sadisa Vadanasa. In a single powerful word, through the repetition of similar syllables, are conveyed a bunch of aesthetic meanings, meanings that define and are defined by the culture of the court. There are plenty of examples like that. In fact, the very title Dakhinapathapati, Lord of the Southern Way, which is a Satavahana royal title, is a compound word that uses the repetition of particular syllables to create a sonorous effect. Now that's all well and good, I hear you say, but what does it have to do with Rudradaman? Good point. So let's come back to the politics a bit. In the last episode of this podcast, The Shadows of Andhra Stupas, we joined a group of pilgrims who visited the magnificent stupa of Amaravati in Andhra Pradesh and touched upon the fact that though the Satavahanas made donations to the stupas, most of the work on it was paid for by much smaller donors, an ancient equivalent of crowdsourcing using local agricultural and trade networks instead of GoFundMe.com. The Satavahanas ending up in Andhra is due, in part, to the activities of Rudradaman. Rudradaman's grandfather was a Shaka noble who served in the court and maybe in the army of the Mahakshatrapa Nahaparna. 
Nahapana was responsible for the Shaka's first victories over the Satavahanas and had conquered much of the northern Deccan from them so that he could control more of the trade coming in from the Mediterranean to India's west coast. Nahapana had no sons and his successors would be his daughter and her husband, Rishabhadatta. That wasn't really a problem for the Shakas, who are relatively egalitarian in terms of gender relations. After all, some of the most famous ancient Shaka warriors and leaders were women. The problem lay in the fact that the Satavahanas under Gautami Putra Satakarni had spectacularly defeated Nahapana and seized most of his treasury. That humiliation gave Rudradaman's grandfather the opportunity he needed to arrange a coup and soon a new Shaka dynasty was ruling from their capital of Ujjain, a city that still survives today in modern Madhya Pradesh. Under Rudradaman's dynasty, the Shakas soon began a dramatic recovery, not just against the Satavahanas, but against most of their other neighbours. Like many other Indian kings, Rudradaman's power and independence were guaranteed by subjugating and raiding other neighbours, forcing them to accept his superiority and pay him tribute. This tribute took many forms. There was the standard gold and associated swag, but also the more unpleasant practice of marrying the daughters of the kings he defeated. Of course, Rudradaman claims that all these princesses voluntarily chose to marry him at Swayamvaras, which was an ancient Indian ritual where supposedly a bunch of princes would show up at a royal court and the eligible princess would garland the one that she found sexiest. It's present in most of India's ancient epics, but as you'll see in later episodes, there are good grounds for doubting how much freedom princesses actually had in making these choices. Rudradaman recognized the importance of appearances and family bonds. In-laws were, in his logic, less likely to attack him. That's probably why he married his daughter to Gautami Putra's younger son, who eventually rose to the Satavahana throne as Vashishthiputra Satakarni. Near modern Mumbai is a hill known as Kaneri, derived from its older name, Krishnagiri, the Black Mountain, where this indomitable Shaka queen ordered an inscription to commemorate a gift that she made, possibly to a Buddhist monastery. This water cistern is the meritorious gift of the queen of the illustrious Satakarni Vasishtiputra. She is descended from the race of Shaka kings and is the daughter of the Mahakshatrapa Rudradaman. Her confidential minister, Sateraka, also contributed. There's many reasons why this inscription is thought-provoking. The first is that this, as I mentioned earlier, is the only Satavahana inscription known to have been issued in Sanskrit. Every other inscription issued by them was in Prakrit. The second is that this lady had her own confidential minister implying that she wielded considerable independence and influence in the Satavahana court. The third is that sadly her name does not survive, though her fathers, her ministers and her husbands have. Maybe that was an accident of history, or maybe her name was deliberately raised. Why would that have happened? It's simple, Rudradaman himself gave us the answer when we started this episode. Either Rudradaman or Vashishthiputra was dissatisfied with the size of his kingdom and decided to attack the other, ending in quite unpleasant consequences for the Satavahana, who was defeated not once, but twice. At the end of it, 
Satavahana power in the western Deccan was broken for generations and the center of gravity of their kingdom shifted towards Andhra where, as we've seen, smaller independent polities were rising as was Buddhism and the grand Mahachaitya of Amaravati. But let's come back to the fact that it's the Shakas, considered foreign invaders of the Indian subcontinent, who wrote in Sanskrit, whereas the Satavahanas, who were indigenous to the land, were writing in Prakrit. Both of these dynasties were expressing their right to rule, their royal duties and rights, by deliberately drawing on a single language that was associated with certain cultural norms. In the process, politics, religion, language and culture intertwined into a heady mix and into a chain that would define the future course of the Indian subcontinent. It was a time of extraordinary political, economic and cultural flux. One fascinating aspect of all this is the appearance of the culture of karma, of pleasure. The intersection of court and culture can be seen in the Gatha Sattasai, the 700 poems, which is an extraordinary compendium of love poetry written in Maharashtri Prakrit and attributed to the Satavahana king Hala. Nobody is really sure who Hala is. It may have been a personal name of a king who had a much fancier official title. According to legend, this Hala was playing with his wives in a pool and was splashing them with water. One of them squealed Modakai Puraya, meaning don't throw water on me. Poor Hala instead thought she was referring to Modaka, the still famous Indian sweet, and pelted the lady with sweets, at which point she gave him a lecture on his ignorance of Sanskrit grammar and told him he should have analyzed Modaka as Ma Odaka, literally no water. In other stories, Hala requests a goddess to stay in his palace with him, but she agrees to do so for only two days, during which everyone in the palace spontaneously explodes into Prakrit poetry. In another, he offered four million gold pieces as prize money for just four poems and collected all the submissions into a single compilation, The Seven Centuries. Either way, we can be reasonably sure that a royal court in the Deccan was responsible for this compendium, expressing their idealization of the idea of love, but most strikingly set in the context of village lives. Its narrators speak mostly with the voices of women and express a touching array of human emotions that we can still identify with. As one translator puts it, they map out the territory of love from the coastline of the sidelong look to the fertile valleys of infidelity. From the river thicket, where it saw a girl and her first lover, the astonished birds flew with a shudder. As the traveler, eyes raised, cupped hands filled with water, spreads his fingers and lets it run through, she, pouring it, reduces the trickle. While the bhikshu views her navel, and she his handsome face, crows lick clean both ladle and arms pole. The village destroyed, the heart ecstatic, houses burning, I passed him the picture. Languages once only used for rituals, religious activities and other scriptures were now used by courts to express new ideas of prestige, of behavior, and of culture. Around this time, 
Some of the greatest works in Tamil literature were being composed in the Sangams, something that we'll return to in a later episode. In South India, these new literary traditions drew on both Prakrit and Tamil. In North India, the Central Asian conquerors who had grown wealthy through war now chose to put their money into another language, Sanskrit. And Sanskrit, of course, was associated with the most ancient of Indian religions, Hinduism. The language used to compose the esoteric mantras of the Vedas and the extraordinary philosophy of the Upanishads now turned its copious, beautiful grammar to create new modes of expression, that is, poetry, drama, scientific textbooks, and of course, to one of the most enduring forms of literature in South Asia, the Royal Eulogy. This was the Sanskrit Prashasti, payans to the beauty and power of the king, expressing a new way of thinking about statehood and royalty. Rudradaman, for example, claimed that all the castes chose him as their lord to protect them and that through his rule, they were able to achieve their goals of dharma, the path ordained for them by religion, artha, material well-being, and karma, pleasure and love. The king's role was now to ensure social order as conceived of through the caste system and to ensure that each caste was happy but also performed their religious and ritual duties in a hierarchy with him and his priests at the very top. That's what the kings brag about, of course, but prashastis are basically royal advertisements and should be taken about as seriously as government ads today. The real picture was much more complex. Alternative ideas of life and royalty were still thriving in Buddhist and other traditions and hundreds of local variations still existed. As the culture of karma was evolving in the Satavahana court as we've seen, so too were ideas about dharma and artha across the subcontinent feeding into this new melting pot of politics, economics and language. A new pattern was emerging. The creation of the state, the subjugation of the masses and the extraction of wealth to create an aristocracy and loyalty would be justified through this. The wealthier classes no longer defined themselves mostly through religious patronage and devotion. A new era was dawning where they would also define themselves through their participation in the court and their association with the king. The literary battles of Sanskrit and Prakrit would far outlive their initiators, the Shakas and the Satavahanas. The prestige of Prakrit would eventually be reduced to the point where it was just considered a sub-language, nothing compared to the glory of Sanskrit, of Sanskrit rituals, of Sanskrit ideas of society and science and religions. It was not just a religious thing though. Sanskrit shouldn't just be seen as being only about Hinduism. Over centuries, Buddhism, which initially deliberately expressed itself in languages such as Ardhamagadhi in order to differentiate itself from the Vedic religion which used Sanskrit, would itself turn to Sanskrit to express some of its most startling philosophical developments, as we'll see in the next episode. Much of the literary forms and genres in later Sanskrit writing would actually build off of originals patronized by the Prakrit-speaking courts of the Satavahanas, as well as the many other languages of power developed by less famous religions, cultures, and kingdoms. The new sort of overarching superculture that these interactions created would live on and give birth to something much more vast. 
as its popularity spread like a wave throughout India and then into Southeast Asia, local populations were adapted to their own traditions, creating an immense cultural region called the Sanskrit Cosmopolis. This is a striking parallel to what was happening in the Mediterranean world, where Latin was gradually becoming a classical language spoken by millions, but often enforced by the bloody iron hand of the Roman Empire. The Sanskrit Cosmopolis, on the other hand, seems to have spread voluntarily. It is an extraordinary occurrence with no parallel in human history. And as we'll see in future episodes, it'll shape the history of India for millennia. The battles over language, the power of language, still continue to this day. Starting from the 2nd of January 2019, Echoes of India will be out every Wednesday. If you like this podcast, why not leave us a rating and review? And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. While you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at IVM Podcasts. And if you have questions or comments on this episode of Echoes, I'm at Ekanisetti on Twitter and at Aniruddha Devaraya on Instagram.